this week we have a guest on the podcast. I was thinking that maybe you're all tired of hearing a Scottish accent. So I thought, okay, we'll get someone else on. But guess what? He has one too. So you're stuck with Scottish nuclear nerds. But aren't they the best kind? My guest is Taras Young, who has been collecting, um, what would you call it, nuclear ephemera for the past 10 years or so. Civil defence booklets, public information pamphlets, scraps and snippets of nuclear horror from archives and eBay. And now he has written a book about it, which gathers photographs of the best of his creepy collection. So let's speak to Taras, who joined me on the line from Edinburgh. Can you tell us a bit about your background and what your book is about? Sure. So uh, my book's called Nuclear War in the UK, um, and it's basically a look at all the planning that uh, officials did uh, ahead of nuclear war. So it's got uh, about 100 illustrations, which are of uh, public information documents mostly. So booklets and guides, pamphlets, posters, leaflets, all kinds of things that were created around nuclear attack, most of which were never released, some of which were. So things like Protect and Survive, which everybody, well, a lot of people will have heard of, um, which is the the, uh, central government document. It's a brochure that would have been issued to people had nuclear attack seemed inevitable, um, which had an interesting history because it was then released publicly uh, in 1980 by the Thatcher government after they were put under some pressure to do so. Um, So that's the one that a lot of people are familiar with. But then there's all kinds of other ones, uh, you know, handmade ones from... Oxford City Council, um, which was sort of their equivalent of Protect and Survive. There's ones made by left-wing councils that were protesting against central government's attitude to civil defence. So ones that just tell you, you and your family are going to be blown to smithereens, so you better do something about protesting against this thing. There's documents in there from from the post office who had a, who were interested in educating their employees on their role during nuclear attack. So yeah, there's just kind of very broad range of these official documents that were fortunately never put into action. But I just find it absolutely fascinating that there's so much of this stuff had to be created and existed, uh, even though, you know, fortunately it never had to be used. So there we have an overview of what you can find in Taras's new book. But I was also interested in finding out how he got into the subject because it is one which demands a lot of mental energy. You can't just dabble in nuclear war. You're either in or you're out. So how did he get into this subject? You all know I fell into this when I was still a toddler, having been traumatised, utterly traumatised, by seeing threads as a three-year-old. So has Taras been demented and obsessed since childhood? How did this all start? I think much like yourself, um, it's been a sort of grim background interest in in my life that's been foregrounded by uh, my desire to sort of get more information out there. So, so I mean, you'll be familiar with this, Julie, that there's not a huge amount of uh, stuff out there about this topic yet, although that's obviously changing. And um, when I, I got into it, maybe 
10, 12 years ago. It was kind of a, a chance encounter with a document up in my grandparents' attic, actually, which was this booklet aimed at, I think it was actually one of civil defence booklets, you know, the old civil defence corps ones from the, the 1960s, and it was called Atomic Warfare, which got my attention. And I didn't really read it read it too much because I was sort of 10 years old, but I think it sparked something. And then finding out later on about things like Protect and Survive, and then finding a copy of Protect and Survive just kind of set me down a path. Um, so I've been collecting these things for 10 years, as I say, and it's just, uh, it's ballooned from there. So um, I think when I when I started out, there wasn't really anything on this topic, and kind of that never changed. And I thought, well, if someone's got to write something about these amazing booklets and things, so I decided that would be me. Okay. And uh, now, do you actually collect uh, original pamphlets? And if so, wh- where do you find them? I do. Yeah. I mean, mostly on eBay, to be honest. It's been an amazing resource um, for finding things. And I think a lot of the time it's just people clearing out their, their you know, grand, granddad's passed away and we found this rubbish in his in his loft and uh, we'll stick it on eBay and see if, see if we can get a few quid for it, which from my point of view is fantastic because um, a lot of the things, particularly when I started out, were quite cheap. Not so much anymore now that a lot more people are interested in the topic. But yeah, it's it was probably the right time to start collecting when when eBay had just sort of come into its own and people weren't yet quite considering the Cold War as as a sort of uh, historical period as as they are starting to now. So what's your uh, Cold War collection like? How many documents do you have um, in storage? I've got um, approaching 500 things. Wow, um, which is blows my mind a bit because I mean I never started out to have a, a giant collection, but it's like when you you start off with the obvious things like protect and survive, and then you, you start finding little references here and there to other things, and you think, oh, I wonder if that's out there, and do a little search, and eventually come across a copy, and you end up with this enormous collection. You say that in the past it was uh, it was quite easy to find things on eBay, but these days it, is, are there other people trying to buy them, and is there a big surge of interest in it now? Yeah, there seems to be. Um, I mean, I know I've kind of grown to 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 know who who's out there, or at least kind of um, guess who else is bidding, just from knowing other people in the sort of community of. Uh, people who were interested in the Cold War. Um, so I've identified a few people just through conversations like, oh, you were bidding on this. And they say, yeah, that was me. Like back in the day, there was maybe two or three people who were obviously out there bidding on stuff and getting excited about it and putting the prices up, but it never went too high. Now you can see some kind of bonkers prices. Like there was a, a local authority pamphlet, a sort of a left-wing local authority anti-nuclear uh, pamphlet that just kept get, getting bid up and up and up and it went up to something like 80 quid or something which is you know way beyond what I would pay for most things and I think it was actually because um, it had a Raymond Briggs picture on the cover um, and I think that the other person just really valued that which I mean fair enough but I'm not going to spend 80 quid on a, on a booklet unless it's something particularly special. Okay and of your vast collection um, which is the most treasured or the, or the most unique? Ooh, I think... In terms of most treasured, uh, probably my 1975 copy of Protect and Survive. So um, that's the one that um, they they originally printed up this small batch of 
2,000 copies, I believe, that went out just to uh, chief executives of local authorities, chiefs of police, and that kind of thing. Um, and they were just issued with one copy. The letter that came with it said, you're not getting another copy to so look after this one. Um, and that was the end of it. And then it wasn't until 1980 that they reprinted it um, and made it public and put it up for, for sale. So that early copy of Protect and Survive. The only place that I'd ever seen it was, um, well, I saw one copy in the National Archives down in Kew and the other one in the National Records of Scotland. So I don't think there's many copies of that one. And again, it came up on eBay and, and someone, I think they even misspelt the title. So there wasn't any interest in it whatsoever, which was bonkers. And it, I got it for like six or seven quid. Um, wow. Yeah, that was my reaction too. Um, I had I had a friend on standby in case my internet went down or something so that he could bid on it instead. Um, it was like a, a military operation, but in the end it wasn't needed. So that that's that's the thing that I got most excited about. And it's just because it's just, it's that collector's thing of um, something that's slightly different and something that, you, you know, it's like a little sort of holy grail that a lot of people won't care about the, sl- the sort of slight differences with the, the final 1980 publication. But... Um, for me, that was quite important. And any of these old pamphlets or leaflets have any kind of handwritten notes in them? You know, did anyone jot down in pencil, um, oh God, we're going to die, <laughs> anything like that? Yeah, loads, loads of things. I mean, again, another copy of Protect and Survive I had that had someone had gone through it in pencil and put question marks next to things and don't be stupid and that kind of thing. So <laughs> it's quite fun to see sort of contemporary reactions to, to the stuff that the government was putting out. What's your opinion of Protect and Survive? Do you share the common view that it was all of a bit useless or do you see some value in it? Uh, oh, it's a very good question because um, it was never meant to be released, as you probably know. It, it wasn't before 1980, as I say, they, they were just going to do those 2,000 copies for people who had a sort of need to know and the public wasn't meant to actually see that booklet or indeed see the the tv campaigns that were the main part of the protect and survive scheme so uh, yeah i think take if you take it on its own and you take it out of context then it's not very useful but if if it had actually been kept sufficiently under wraps and only released when they were having the transition to war i think it might have had some kind of use now whether that use was uh you know the the intended use was it to control the public or was it to help the public i don't know i would veer on the side of saying it was to control the public keep people in their homes and that sort of thing but i think it would have been a lot more effective had they managed to keep it under wraps so it was a bit bit of a cock up in my opinion actually releasing it um, now, for any listeners, Taras, who don't uh, know what Protect and Survive is, I'm sure most of my listeners do, but can you just give us a brief summary of, of what Protect and Survive told the reader to do? Sure. So it was a it was a government public information campaign that was designed to tell people what to do if the worst should happen. So if there was a, a ramping up in hostilities between East and West, uh, how they should prepare their homes, you know, survival kit they should put together, that kind of thing. And then what, what they should do should attack happen. So how to prepare a shelter for your fa- yourself and your family, but then also what to do once you're inside that shelter, how to label up bodies and dispose of them and hygiene and all that kind of thing so yeah it was a a diy guide to uh looking after yourself and your family uh in case of nuclear attack now obviously i've looked through your book um taras and there are lots of really strong images in it because the book recreates posters booklets information campaigns etc which 
era or which aspect of the Cold War do you think produced the strongest or the most memorable or intimidating imagery? Uh, for me, I think the 19, sort of late 70s, early 80s, that period when Thatcher and Reagan were just coming into power and when everything was uh, getting really heightened again. So sort of 81 to 85, maybe that kind of period is some of the some of the protest stuff and some of the anti-nuclear councils just went absolutely wild with their illustrations and their descriptions of the kind of disaster and calamity that would befall towns in 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 britain i mean mostly northern county and city councils put out these to me kind of bonkers pamphlets with this each one you know leicester hull uh, leeds all these places putting out these booklets with images of their town halls being completely annihilated by Soviet nuclear weapons. And it's just kind of shocking, but it's deliberately shocking, I think, because they wanted people who lived there to think, well, that's just down the road from me, and I'm going to get absolutely blown to smithereens. So um, I'm going to start, you know, campaigning against this. So I think that period uh, when everything became hyper-politicized and uh, people were really feeling threatened by it, but also to some extent, it was the first time people started really distrusting the state and saying, well, you're not really preparing uh, anything for us, are you? You're just you're just going to go down into the bunkers, all the um, sort of politicians and the, the royal family, and you're just going to leave us up here to suffer. So I think that period just created these amazing, uh, colourful and really exciting images, but also really sort of terrifying. And we can see a lot of these images in the book, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, yep. What are your favourite images from the book? Do you want to maybe choose choose a few and tell us about them? Uh, yeah, so uh, one of them is one of these local authority booklets, Hull and the Bomb. So the, the town of Kingston-upon-Hull down in, in uh, Yorkshire put out this booklet and on the cover it's got, I believe it's the, the gardens that are at the centre of Hull being blown up by this incredibly colourful and bright um, uh, Soviet nuclear weapon and you just see it's obviously seconds after it's happened because there's uh, radiating uh, circles coming out of it showing the the waves of destruction that are about to take out this city and it's it's just such a an eye-catching thing and someone's obviously put a lot of love into into creating this (laughs) illustration that's so horrific. Um, so that's that's one of my favourite uh, covers. I mean, the in- interestingly, the insides of the local authority booklets that were sort of anti-nuclear were all very similar. And I suspect that uh, Hull, Leicester, Leeds, these places all just bought a template and just sort of customised each of the booklets to suit. So sort of insert your, your town's name here, insert how many people live in your town here. So it's quite an interesting approach. But Hull, I think, really went to town on the cover, though. Um, which makes it one of my favourites. So I suppose I'm um, thinking of, say, disaster films. Um, we always see, uh, I think it's Independence Day, the classic image of the White House being attacked. But you're, but I think what you're seeing is these left-wing local councils took the opposite approach. It wasn't this big central seat of government that was being attacked. It was your local town hall, you know, something at the end of your roads that you know and recognise. Yeah, that's right. So rather than seeing, you know, uh, Westminster blown up, which I'm sure some people in the north wouldn't have minded so much, um, they were seeing their actual their town being affected directly by uh, by the Cold War, and it's just that bringing everything home and and making it real for people for the sort of man on the street. 
And I suppose um, that's what makes Threads so powerful because that has the, the same image of the, of the Sheffield Town Hall blowing up. I need to bring Threads into it, of course, Tara. So do you <laughs> share my obsession with that, with that brilliant film? I do. I, I share your obsession with Threads and also your disdain for the day after, which yes, is quite right. <laughs> such a terrible film. But it kind of ter- terrible in quite a hilarious way, whereas Threads is, well, not terrible, but wonderful in a horrible way. So they're quite opposite in that way. Do you mind if I ask him um, what age you were when you first saw Threads? And did it, did it shape your interest in nuclear war? Well, I was actually quite old, relatively speaking. Um, I only saw it maybe... 10 years ago, like when I was getting into this topic, because um, I was born in 1984 when same year as Threads came out. Uh, and obviously they didn't show it until 2003, was it? Like after that, I know they showed it in 1985, but I would have been one, so not very useful for me. So it, was, it wasn't until the, um, the BFI DVD came out that I actually saw it. So it didn't, I wouldn't say it really shaped me in the same way that it would have done had I seen it aged five or six or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's impossible not to be shaped in some way by it when you see when you see what goes on in there. So yeah, pretty horrendous. I mean, what is great about Threads is that you can read as much as you like about nuclear war, but seeing it actually played out like that and so realistically is um, is really something else and it really impacts on you, doesn't it? No, I'm absolutely obsessed with that. I'm sure you've picked that up from Twitter. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Choose another image from the book then, Taras, and tell us um, again what the image is and why it's so powerful to you. Okay. Um, well, another of the images that I really like is there's an army NBC survival in the UK booklet. It, it's an official army document but they've added this sort of silhouette of a, an atomic explosion to the front, so that makes it quite exciting. And it's not so much the image that excites me, but the actual content of this document. So it's something that people don't necessarily think about too much. You might think about how the police react, like what the police would have to do during a nuclear attack. You might think about what the government would do, what people would do, and then obviously Civil Defence Corps, the Royal Observer Corps, had a really important role in defending or looking after the UK during that kind of Cold War nuclear attack uh, situation. But you don't think so much about the role of the armed forces and the army in particular. So obviously, British Army, there's a lot of soldiers, troops uh, stationed around the UK, and they would have a role in nuclear attack. They'd also need to know how to protect themselves and how to protect and survive, but army style. So that's what this document is. And it's interestingly, a lot of the content about how to protect yourself and survive comes from protect and survive, which changed my view a bit of protect and survive. Not entirely, but a little bit. Because if the government is telling its own troops that the advice in protect and survive is what they should be doing, then does that mean they genuinely believed that it would be the right thing to do for the public too? I don't know. So yeah, it's more what was in this document than what it looks like. Just an odd thing to find that this advice that everyone kind of ridicules was actually also being given to the army. So it just made me think a bit. Yeah, that is quite interesting. I I don't... um look much into the military side of it but um, so that's that's hugely interesting they were giving the same advice or generally the same advice to their to their own troops so yeah that's right and there, there's actually a, a wee um sort of aid memoir a, a plastic card that was handed out to soldiers as well which is just a sort of shortened version of what's in this uh, army nbc survival booklet and that card has images from protect and survive and they've just replaced 
the, uh, the the householder with a soldier. So it kind of underlines that they were serious about that advice, which is really quite odd to me, having read so much about uh, protecting survivors, a load of rubbish, the advice wasn't useful. But then, again, the, the army are being told to do the same thing. So maybe the government thought there was something in it. I don't know. So um, the advice for the, the householder, you know, prop your doors and your mattress against the wall. Um, how did that translate for soldiers? Because we can assume they didn't have kitchen doors and mattresses out in the field. Well, no, it's it's less out in the field and more, you know, you're, you're stationed in your barracks or whatever, or you find, your, you find yourself out at the pub or something like that. But I think to, to a certain extent, I think it's also if the soldiers are being sent out to help public, because I guess if, if wars war was looming and you're you're stationed somewhere in the UK you're going to be deployed out into the cities to help out it's it's yeah that's why it's an interesting document for me because it's it's at odds with everything that i thought about the, the government's sort of sneaky um, surreptitious attitude to you know we must protect the state and the public can fend for themselves because it's it's setting out this it's basically saying that the army is going to be out helping people which you kind of don't think about so much well i mean if you're as cynical as me you think the army are going to just look after the state talking about you know, who's going to be helping the civilians of course i read a booklet a few weeks ago about advice for police after nuclear war and their, their advice was you've probably read it yourself the police manual of home defense yes and yeah. in terms of them um, taking shelter it's you know find a room in the police station which is far away from the walls and you stay there for days and of course when it comes to having to go to the toilet it's if you have to in extreme measures dig or burrow a little hole in the corner of the room and you use that as your toilet so you know there's obviously no particular help or special rules or special comforts for the police either that's right yeah and and the the police stuff is interesting to me too because on the same front where i always thought um the police would be instructed to go out there and quell riots and that kind of thing but in those booklets it does have a little bit like a hint of that but it never explicitly says you know looters will be shot or anything like that which to me is kind of annoying because you want it to just be black and white like that but they kind of leave everything open-ended it's all um, when the time comes we'll decide what to do sort of thing it's very sort of confusing for well nothing's black and white let's put it that way one of the most interesting phrases I've ever found in the documents about the police or about law and order after nuclear war was so tantalising and frightening because it was so vague mm. and uh, I think it was something like um, how to deal with criminals after nuclear war of course you can't put them in jail, you can't fine them because these things are no longer valid punishments. So one possible punishment was, and again, I think I've got the phrase correct just from memory, they would be subject to public disapproval. I think that's it. And to yes. me, that just implies medieval punishments, like putting them in the stocks or yes. <laughs> pelting them with rotten fruit or something. Yeah, I, I think there's a document down in the National Archives. I don't know if you've come across it. it it's written by Jane M. Hogg. And it's the one that tells, uh, that advises the Home Office that they might want to use psychopaths to to sort of control people after a nuclear attack. It's one of the most off-the-wall documents that I've come across. And I think that one actually mentions stocks and pillories as a potential punishment. It seems like from the surrounding materials around that document that it wasn't taken entirely seriously. And actually, you can get this lady, Jane M. Hogg, she wrote her autobiography and self-published it, and um, you can get it on Kindle, actually. And it's really fascinating, because it gives you a peek sort of behind the curtain, but it's also, there's sort of elements of a thriller to it, and some, well, 
I mean, I'll let you read it, but it's it's got some very it's a very interesting book on several levels. So she, just as a bit of background on her, she worked originally, I think, in the fire service, but then she was seconded to F6 division of the Home Office, which was the civil defence uh, section, of course. And she, it, she didn't really want to work on that stuff. She wanted to work on fire service stuff, like so. Her her expertise was in. She was a sort of statistician. She she determined where you should put fire stations in order for the greatest area to be covered by the smallest number of fire stations and, and sort of saving enough lives. So that was her the thing that she was interested in. But then she was reassigned to civil defence planning, and yeah, she wrote this report, which was just a little bit. Uh, I don't know if unhinged is the word, but it's 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 certainly out there um, in terms of its suggestions. But then the thing is with all this stuff, and you'll have come across this, is that there's never an answer. Like you can you can uh, dig deeper and deeper through all these layers and layers of suggestions, and here's what we'll do, and we'll oh we'll pass this off to local authorities and that kind of thing. But at the very bottom of it, there isn't anything. There's no solution to nuclear war. It's like we're all gonna die. Uh, but nobody wants to admit it. There's just layers and layers and layers on top of it to try and cover up the fact that it's just going to be horrific and nothing's going to function and we're all going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so speaking of the rule terrorists for having psychopaths, or the, the idea for having psychopaths in, mm. in positions of power or having them work for us after nuclear war, I see that you'd written about that for the Welcome Collection. So can you tell us a bit about, about the article you wrote and what the plans or what the suggestions were for psychopaths after nuclear war? Yeah, well, I'd written this article and it was just a sort of light overview of um, some of the, the plans for, for what would happen after a nuclear attack. And yeah, it had come out of that document that I found down in the National Archives. I mean, the idea behind releasing psychopaths onto the public and putting them in positions of authority just sounds outrageous. But then if you think about it, as they did with your 1980s uh, home office planner hat, where you've got to come up with something to, to, to solve this problem of how are we going to govern after the bomb? They they thought that they'd make the best candidates because they're completely dispassionate. They don't have any emotions, um, and they'll be able to make sort of a hundred percent rational decisions about who should be doing which job and what to focus work on and that kind of thing. So, in a way, it makes sense, but only if you sort of twist your mind in a particular way. <laughs> strange idea, but then of course, once you get into this topic, everything is strange. Everything is. Yeah. Absolutely surreal. Um, often when I'm doing my podcasts, I almost want to laugh because some of the stuff is so absurd. Yeah. But then nuclear war is so ridiculous that, of course, the only plans which you could possibly think of to meet it would be plans which are equally unthinkable and ridiculous. Yeah. There's no point drawing up a nice, sensible plan. <laughs> No, exactly. And you just come across the most bizarre sort of little details that, I mean, obviously you've you've done so many of these podcasts now and highlighted just crazy stuff. Yeah, just tiny little details um, that people were focusing down on. And I wonder if it's just because at the back of their mind they thought, well, this is completely pointless. So let's just pick a bunch of things that we can focus on and come up with some plans for and look like we're doing something. Because I guess the, the ulti- ultimately governments are just afraid that someone will say, well, why aren't you planning for this? And if you come back and say, well, there's no point, that's just going to really freak people out. Of course, yeah. So, so if you plan for nuclear war, you're seen as almost encouraging it or you know, encouraging the fallacy that it can be survived. But if you don't plan for it, 
people will still be angry at you because you're leaving us all in the lurch. So yeah. I do have some sympathy for the government in those days. Um, yeah, exactly. Whatever they do, they're going to be uh, damned and ridiculed by the public. So I believe you've chosen a third image for us, Taras, from the book. Yeah, so the third one came from uh, the Wiltshire uh, County Council War Book. Um, and for people who don't know what a war book is, it's a collection of uh, documents that a, a local authority would put together uh, and distribute out to a sort of select group of people within that area. And it would just detail exactly how the local area would function uh, should there be a nuclear attack. And the, most of the, the war books that you'll find, um, particularly later on, are from more right-wing councils. The left-wing ones, particularly the nuclear-free zones, just refused to engage with central government on civil defence planning because they thought it was completely pointless. But these right-wing ones, like Wiltshire, were much more interested in you know, fulfilling their, their statutory obligation to, to, to come up with a civil defence plan, but some of them put a little bit too much zeal into it, I think. And uh, Wiltshire was certainly one of those. So this uh, document that I've chosen, which is in the book, is it's called Probable Phases Leading Into War. And it's this sort of, it's like a graph and it just shows the transition from what they call the ups and downs of everyday life, which just sounds lovely, to, at the other end, strike, which is uh, where the, the, the bomb has been detonated in Wiltshire. And it just goes step by step through each sort of phase of things getting worse and worse from the ups and downs of everyday life, which is, you know, the ordinary things that councils deal with. And then it suddenly jumps into a potentially dangerous situation, which I presume is uh, like in threads when they're watching the TV and things are just starting to kick off, but not, not, not too much to worry about. And then it goes preoccupation with crisis news and television. And then serious note sounded by commentators anxiety and apprehension displayed by public and that's sort of that's the end of stage one of the uh the danger zone and then it goes into crisis meetings by government comment by ministers reaction by public so it's this gradual transition to war that's just getting faster and faster and sort of really gaining a head of steam behind it serious reaction by public indicating breakdown in order supply communications etc Covert warning, overt warning, and then strike. So it's this um, amazing handmade, lo very local authority thing that just depicts the transition from that uh, uh, normal, from normalcy into just the warnings and then nuclear attack. And someone has hand drawn with a felt tip pen little X's along this sort of graph line of things descending into chaos. And it's just such a nice little sort of handmade thing that yeah it's it's someone's used it in their training and it's it's nice to have a connection with someone who, who's taking this very seriously and then when we see strike the graph just plunges down into hell <laughs> yeah that's it it's all over <laughs> <laughs> <Poor Wiltshire. laughs> yeah well actually i guess wiltshire would have been probably in a better position than most because they've done all this planning right <laughs> <laughs> maybe can you tell us when the book's published, Taras, and um, we can pre-order it on Amazon, I believe? Yeah, that's right. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's coming out on Wednesday the 9th of October, which should be just after this podcast comes out. You can pre-order it on Amazon. You can pre-order it on Four Corners Books website, who are the publisher. And hopefully you'll be able to buy it in bookshops as well. Great. And if any of the listeners want to find you online, do you have a website and what's your Twitter? 
Yes, I have a website. It's coldwar.org.uk. Uh, and I share a bunch of things on there. Um, actually, quite a lot of the stuff on there won't be in the book. So there's some extra bonus content on there, um, sort of like a, the director's commentary on a DVD, maybe. And my uh, Twitter is at Taras Young, but also at Cold War UK uh, would be the one to follow if you're interested in the Cold War stuff. And we certainly are, aren't we? And thank you, Taras, for giving us your time and talking to us about your obsession, which I'm sure most of us listening do share. Taras kindly sent me a review copy of the book and um, because it's so filled with uh, glossy photographs with Taras's commentary of course I thought of it as a kind of coffee table book but you know coffee table books are typically filled with you know boring nonsense stuff about interior decorating or pretty pictures pretty paintings etc. Taras's coffee table book is filled with horror and absurdity and the ridiculous surreal nature of how Britain planned for nuclear war so I recommend it I loved it and speaking of good books I think what we'll do for next week's episode is a similar podcast to the previous one where I read Cormac McCarthy's The Road and then looked at all the what I interpret as nuclear war aspects of it and applied them to real life. Is this what would have happened? And if so, how did uh, governments and civil defence organisations plan for it? I might do the same with another book, another novel, called Brother in the Land. It's a young adult novel, but please don't let that put you off. It's in no way trivial or light. It's actually surprisingly bold and dark. Not that I've read any young adult novels since becoming an adult. I would be afraid to go back to books I read as a young adult in case my weariness and cynicism that I've acquired in adulthood has dented or ruined them. The only books that I reread that I read in childhood are the Tintin books. They never nothing can tarnish them. Other novels that I read as a 12, 13, 14 year old, I even though if I loved them I wouldn't read them again because I'm miserably and horribly different. But don't have any trepidation about reading Brother in the Land if you're, as I am, a jaded and miserable adult. It's still a great novel, I love it. And it's about nuclear war. It's about the aftermath of nuclear war in Yorkshire. Good old Yorkshire, who also gave us threads, of course. So I'm going to read that and not analyse the book. This isn't a literary podcast. But we will look at the aspects of nuclear war, as we did with the Road podcast, and see how realistic they were and what governments did in order to prepare for them. As an example of how bold and unafraid this novel is, even though it's a young adult one, there are scenes such as, let me think, there's an awful scene where there's a family who have a fallout shelter in their back garden, quite rare in Britain of course, far more common in America. Uh, This family are hiding in their fallout shelter of course, there's just been a nuclear war, and other survivors who are without shelter are jealous, angry, desperate and so they try and smoke them out, I think that's how they phrase it they call them badgers I believe and they block up the air vents of the shelter to try and force the family out and therefore attack them and take their supplies there's also a scene where the survivors of the nuclear war are being fed by um, the government of course who have stockpiled the food and are now dishing it out at rest centres as we've discussed would happen in previous podcasts but as I remember there are two queues formed at this feeding centre one is for the sick and the elderly and the weak and the other is for those who are relatively strong and young and 
of course, it turns out that those who are uh, sick and weak and elderly are being fed their stew with a little something sprinkled into it to finish them off, basically. And that was certainly never in any government plans. You can't plan to murder your population. But some people would, of course, entertain the idea that that may happen because after a nuclear war, people who are weak and sick and elderly are a burden, arguably, because this is a society where your worth is only measured by what manual labour you can contribute. So that was a very horrifying scene. And again, in my literary prejudice, I wouldn't have expected such a bold scene in a young adult novel. So don't be wary of it. You'll still get a great, hefty nuclear war story out of it. So that's Brother in the Land by Robert Swindles. We will be reading that and analysing the nuclear horror next Sunday. All that remains for this week is to thank all my patrons. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see that I've been raving about the archives that I was able to buy recently. Thanks to all the money that people donate through my Patreon. The money helps towards the running of the podcast, of course. It allows me to to devote time to the podcast. But it also lets me purchase uh, lots of archives and, of course, travel and visit these archives when purchasing isn't isn't um, possible sometimes it's not possible to purchase them because it won't be a nice little folder which can be photographed it will be a succession of six or seven old boxes stacked full of papers so those ones of course i need to visit in person and get my hands dirty uh, looking through them but in the meantime before i'm able to do that again i've been buying some remotely and of course as with the norfolk podcast of last week sharing them with you here and that's all thanks to my patrons If you want to donate, take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. So let me say thank you to everyone, of course, who donates, but particularly Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lizzie D, Eric, Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louie, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Everybody, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Andrew Skilton, Tony Newman, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins, Messi Ventura, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Oliver Wiles, Andre Russell, Julie Rose, Jonathan Fozard, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jameson, Ian Ilkin, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Wilnuff, Kevin Booter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace and Gordon McNair. I'm always amazed every time I read that list out because it gets bigger and bigger every week. So it won't be so big, it'll be longer than the actual podcast. Um, but thank you everyone who donates, thank you everyone who listens, thank you everyone who's left reviews. And thank you of course to Taras for giving us his time. And I'll be back next week to discuss Brother in the Land. Bye for now.